Hi, Tony Hines here, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Well, great to be here. When it comes to supply chains, we often talk about supply chain partnerships, but how many of these partnerships are real partnerships in the sense that assets, resources, ideas, and indeed profits are shared in fair proportion to work done? Well, that's a key question, isn't it, for everybody entering into a supply chain arrangement. But where does the muscle lie in supply chains? Obviously, the customer at the end of the chain drives the process because they create the demand for the final product or service. But what about the intermediaries along the way? There are all sorts of people involved. There are the originators, the original equipment manufacturers, if it's equipment. There are the extraction companies for raw materials. There are those that manufacture sub-assemblies and work in progress. And there are those that run the operation in an integrated way, from the raw material they obtain through to a finished product. And there are all kinds of different supply chain arrangements that take place. But what happens if one of those firms in the chain is not getting enough resource? Well, it means they can't reinvest. They might be forced to drop out of the market at some point because they're not generating enough cash or enough profit. And it's about first shares. But we all know The power in supply chains will, of course, determine the arrangements that take place in any supply chain. Those with the power in the supply chain are able to exert it to get more of the value. In many industries, there are catalysts and connectors. Now, what do I mean by this statement? Well, there are those firms in the industry that create and innovate and make change happen. And those I call the catalysts. And then there are the connectors. And the connectors are people and firms that bring people together or bring firms together to organise and supply. And those are the connectors. And I'm going to discuss one such firm that I regard as both a connector and a catalyst and explain a little about it. Cargill is a company with 155,000 employees. They work in 70 countries and they have more than 155 years of experience. They say that their purpose is to nourish the world in a safe, responsible and sustainable way. Every day, they connect farmers with markets, customers with ingredients and people and animals with the food that they need to thrive. And they combine this experience with new technologies and insight to serve trusted partners for food, agriculture, financial and industrial customers in more than 125 countries. Now that's on the website. Now it says they're working in 70 countries, but actually they've got customers and partners in 125 countries, according to that statement. Cargill is a company that we would describe as a conglomerate, meaning that they operate in different markets and they are a typical portfolio organisation, meaning that they spread their risk in different industries and sectors. Agriculture, food service, meat and poultry, animal nutrition, food and beverage, risk management, beauty, industrial, supplements, bio-industrial, pharmaceutical and transportation. 
In this particular episode, I want to focus on the involvement in food. And this is particularly poignant when we're talking about food security and fair shares for those in the supply chain that make up the complex food supply chains that we have. First and foremost, Cargill was a trading company when it began. They supply feeds and other inputs and expertise to farmers, and they buy crops and livestock from them. They say they provide insights to partners through data analytics, market expertise, risk management, and financial solutions. And they transform raw materials into finished goods, animal, food ingredients, animal protein, branded foods, and bio-industrials. And of course, they are big in the transportation market. They move the products around the globe by road, rail, rivers, and sea. Cargill claims that the connections throughout the food supply chains that they make makes the world food system more sustainable, resilient, and accessible for everybody. They say that they collaborate with customers and partners to solve challenges and seize opportunities through innovation. And they have 157 years of experience, according to the latest annual report. And they have a keen focus on sustainability. It's a complex business, and they do many good things. They have 46% of women in executive posts. And I was reminded recently, listening to Alan Layton speaking about one of his objectives as an executive chairman, being to ensure inclusiveness of gender and colour. They had 165 billion US dollars in revenue in 2022, according to the annual report. They put 40 million to support humanitarian relief efforts in Ukraine and neighbouring countries, 20 million in new and expanded partnerships to improve food security, and more than 11 million to programmes that support farmer livelihoods and 12 million to drive racial equity in education and nutrition for children of colour from low-income families in our hometown. Thanks to the Cargill Foundation, every Minneapolis high school student will receive one-on-one college and career guidance counselling through partnerships with Twin Cities. And Cargill Care's Employees Disaster Relief Fund dispersed $14 million across 32 countries to help team members worldwide who were dealing with financial hardship during COVID and catastrophes. So on the face of it, there's a lot of good being done by the company. They've also made some very large investments. They announced a 50-50 joint venture with Continental Grain to acquire US poultry producers Sanderson Farms. And they agreed to purchase the performance technologies business of UK-based Croda, a leading maker of bio-based products. They took a stake in a major Latin American salmon producer, Multi-X, and they bought Alst, one of Asia's top chocolate companies. Investments to modernise global networks, $300 million. A partnership with Helm to build one to four butanediol facility in North America. $150 million opened a new plant to make pectin in Brazil, and $100 million completed upgrades to two cocoa processing locations in West Africa. They also opened House of Chocolate in Belgium, and they've added additional capacity for palm refining in Malaysia 
edible oils in India, and the expansion of an animal nutrition innovation center in North America. So big business, lots of investment. They say they're at the center of the agricultural supply chain, which gives them a unique opportunity to facilitate the connections that matter most, from farmers and ranchers to customers and consumers, making the food system more sustainable, resilient and accessible. They also invest heavily in transportation, and I'm going to turn some attention to transportation in a second or two. In shipping, Cargill, Mitsui and Maersk tankers launched Nord, bringing ship owners, charterers, vendors and financiers together to help them make the existing fleets more fuel efficient and to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. They've invested in Zero North to accelerate the use of digital solutions that decarbonize shipping. Through Zero North, vessel owners and operators are able to improve vessel performance, reduce carbon emissions, and increase earnings. Cargill played a leading role in the development of the Sea Cargo Charter, a sustainability framework for chartering fleets. And the goal, in alignment with the International Maritime Organization, is to achieve 50% reduction in GHG emissions by 2050. The first Sea Cargo Charter report was produced in June 2022. When we look at the numbers, we can see what a big business Cargill actually is, and it's a big player in food supply chains worldwide. It has revenues, as we've said, in 2022 of $165 billion, and that's up 23% from a year earlier. Cargill remains a family-owned business, which is amazing for such a large company, and it benefited with increased profits because of commodity trading, particularly with the increased demand for grain, which it was able to facilitate through its supply networks. It's one of the largest U.S. beef processors, and it also now has three chicken producers, Sanderson Farms. There's been some interesting academic literature over the years on the power relationships in supply chains. It's often under-researched, but one paper I came across in 2019 by Lanier, Wemp and Swink in the Journal of Supply Chain Management, Volume 55, Issue 1, had a look at the relationship between supply chain power and real earnings. And there were some interesting findings in that piece of research. Supply chain power was used to improve earnings performance by those that had power, and so they actually benefited by increasing earnings And powerful supply chain firms use different forms of power. For example, it might be mediated or non-mediated, according to these authors, to influence supply chain actions and commitment. Many early studies on power took a look at how it was exercised and used in purchasing negotiations or in product innovation. But this paper was looking at the effect on earnings. And they concluded that powerful supply chain firms enjoy lower consequential cost, both to performance and to market value, from erratic, potentially disruptive behaviours that are often seen to be value-destroying. And the power in the supply chain, because of the resource base that they actually have, provides immediate financial benefits to many. So supply chain power is to the advantage of the powerful firm. Major customers in supply chains also manage their earnings 
in this way using their power to extract more value from the supply chain. A further interesting finding was that stock markets viewed major customers more favorably than non-major customers when it comes to earnings. Most importantly for us here are the managerial contributions that were noted. Investors actually quite like powerful firms to engage and use power in supply chains to extract additional earnings. So they'll reward them by pushing the share price higher. Suppliers who don't have the power in the trading relationship have to cope with powerful customers. And that means they are able to negotiate and extract better value from the supply chain. In my own research, I've studied different forms of power exerted in supply chains, and much of it was negative in the sense that it really was just the powerful supply chain actor exerting power on a much weaker supplier to extract value. In other words, to rearrange how profit is distributed in the supply chain. And I did that work in different industries, but some of the work was conducted in retail clothing and fashion. And in that particular industry, that was certainly the case. The exertion of power was a very negative force. I think I'd like to see a lot more work done in this area, looking at multiple actors in global supply chains and how power is vested, how it arises in the supply chains and how it's exerted, used and applied by different partnerships or different partners in the relationships and the impact that has on the distribution of profit and resources as well as reputation, the impact on reputation. The politics of power is also interesting because it's through the political machinations quite often that people will exert power. Power isn't something you can necessarily see. It's something that's hidden in the conversations, in the contracts and in the arrangements made within supply chains. And supply chains, of course, were originally constructed to make the best of the different talents that could come together to produce a good or a service. So, in a way, that's the non-power aim. But of course, once inside the arrangement, individuals, firms, and how they interact with each other and work in partnership or not, is of course the way in which power can be distributed and redistributed through the supply chain, through the experience of working together. Some of the early research on sources of power took a look at the personal attributes, such as the expert or the referent power. And they looked at coercion, legitimate power, and how they were exerted, applied in the decision-making processes that took place. And firms can gain advantage if management help other channel members achieve their goals. When it comes to coercive power, this can threaten particular channel members and reduce their value-added contributions, and it can move the resources within that supply chain differently. So, for example, you could have a, a monopoly or an oligopoly arrangement where the monopoly actually use the monopoly to extract profit, super profit, 
as economists might say, or they can use their power to influence other members within the supply chain. How power is used in the supply chain, of course, is an ethical consideration as much as a legal consideration or a business consideration. It's about doing the right things in relation to the partners in the supply chain that you're working with. Of course, there's one thing you have to remember when you're reading academic journals about power or influence in supply chains or control, coercion and the exertion of power is that the theoretical basis on which those arguments are built will be different. And so there isn't just one conception of power. There might be many and there might be many theoretical bases for the discussion. And that's an important point for new researchers to understand too, because it means that you can always build your arguments differently by adopting different theoretical bases. And that could be useful if it's a topic that's widely researched and there's lots written about it. You can get the new angle, the new contribution that your work can make. It's what good journalists do too when they write stories about business ideas. They take a new angle. So they call it an angle rather than necessarily a particular contribution. It's a different view, a perspective. Now another piece of research I was very interested in appeared in the Journal of Business Ethics. And it was by Stephen Chen in March 2018. And the paper examined the question of how to determine the extent of multinational corporations' corporate social responsibility for actions by its suppliers. Now, that's a very topical idea, isn't it? Because if you look, for example, in the area I mentioned a few moments ago, in the textile, fashion and retailing arenas, there are many examples and many newsworthy stories that appear about exploitation. And that exploitation can often be the result of power within the supply chain. And that paper by Stephen Chan was in Volume 148, Issue 2 of the Journal of Business Ethics. So if you want to go and read it, you can get hold of it and take a look. And it's really quite interesting the way he wrote the paper. He talks about resource dependence theory, social exchange theory, and social network theory. So there is three theoretical underpinnings for the conceptual framework. Now, what did he find out? That's more important to us in this discussion right now. Well, there were different sorts of power and different influences at play in the supply chains. He talks about economic power and non-economic power, direct and indirect power and the complicity and knowledge of actions. It's a very thoughtful piece of research. And it has implications for supply chain organisations when they're considering their social responsibilities. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode on supply chain, partnerships and power. And some reading for you to do there. But you can also drop by and pick up my Supply Chain Strategies book and read more about power in supply chains and relationships. If you've missed any episodes in the past few weeks, drop by, pick those up too, and I'll see you next time. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.
The Chain Reaction Podcast is written, presented and produced by Tony Hines. Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here to tell you about the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains. Now we have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon. All things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction Podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.